Welcome to The New Chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a variety of other platforms. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Mr. Greg Suckerman. Thanks for joining me today. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Mr. Greg Zuckerman is a three-time Gerald Loeb Award winner. He's the author of the multi-award winning book, The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire Wildcatters. And he regularly appears on CNBC, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg Television, NPR, BBC, ABC, and numerous other radio stations and television channels around the globe. The topic of focus today will be COVID-19, specifically his new book, A Shot to Save the World, which is the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Please welcome Mr. Craig Zuckerman. Um, today, we'll be focusing primarily on his latest book, um, A Shot to Save the World. Um, and I think this will be a really good and exciting conversation. He has highlighted the work of several key people from Moderna, BioNTech, Pfizer, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Novax, Oxford University, and several academic researchers. Uh, it really established and distinguished Journalist, uh, please welcome Greg Zuckerman. So, um, in your book, you highlight uh, that um, success of vaccines can be a model for society, showing how private industry can work hand in hand with government bodies. Um, the COVID nineteen vaccine revolutionaries are now facing are now focusing rather on new challenges, including cancer. AIDS, malaria, multiple sclerosis, and more. So from reading this far, it appears as if the incremental success affiliated with vaccination policies can serve as a model for society. In what way do you see this occurring? And how is this feasible in the long term? Hey, so uh, first of all, happy to be here. Nice to be in touch. And uh, thank you for the interest in my new book, A Shot to Save the World. Uh, yeah, I guess I would say, uh, first and foremost, that these vaccines are the greatest achievement of modern science. Um, I think we're a little too close to those accomplishments to appreciate them fully, but in time we will uh, appreciate them. And in some ways they are a model, um, as you kind of suggest. Um, private industry worked with government uh, agencies um, like never before. And um, these vaccines are were accomplished in a record pace, record speed, uh, 330 days. So it's only because government uh, worked hand in hand with private industry. Yeah, that's true. So do you think or do you see other pathologies, other diseases being a, a progress or treatments being progressed as fast as this one as it pertains to government and industry and government and private partnerships? Or is that uh, far shot. 
Uh, I'm a little skeptical. Um, the government, Operation Warp Speed, uh, investors, they all wrote big checks in the hopes of getting out of this uh, pandemic quickly. And it worked. We succeeded. But would we all do this again? I, I, I hope, it, well, if there's ever another pandemic, maybe we would. And hopefully there isn't another pandemic. But I don't know if we could do the same thing again. I'd like to think that government would work hand in hand with private industry and the NIH and other government scientists do have a nice long history of working with private industry, Moderna and other kind of companies. But in terms of this kind of urgency, I don't know if we could do it again. Okay, that's fair, that's fair. So in the meta narrative, uh, from my understanding, the book appears to be a really uh, condensed meta narrative of what went right with vaccinations during the pandemic. Outside of consistency, outside of the your primary your primary goal of accuracy and consistency with presenting the facts of the situation, what were some other goals affiliated with this project? Well, I like to entertain as much as I do uh, inform. Um, I think if you're going to spend a few hours with a book and spend the money on a book, uh, it should be an enjoyable experience too. So what I try to do is get at some important and potentially boring or dense topics through the people. And that's the way I do it. I think they can be inspiring. They were inspiring to me. And that's part of why I wrote this book mm -hmm. to learn myself. And, and these characters, these scientists, these researchers are quite, they're entertaining, but they're also inspiring. And that's my goal as well, to inspire, to educate uh, and inform and, and entertain as well. Okay, that's good. It's very good. So in your book, it's noted that many vaccination efforts were challenged. Namely, Moderna didn't have the financial, the money to make the vaccine as recently as May 2020, and Pfizer and BioNTech executives were unable to decide on the vaccine design, um, affecting their own efforts. Oxford University scientists weren't convinced the virus was a true, true threat and needed, the, pro, needed um, uh, the stimulus of junior researchers to fo foster focusing on a vaccine. So how do you think uh, risk management and analysis came into play uh, when this vaccine was produced? Well, it is important to remember that uh, as effective and as uh, protective as these vaccines are, they weren't a, a sure thing. We didn't really know whether they would work. And there was a lot of drama that I discovered uh, doing the research for my book. And hopefully the people will enjoy reading about that drama in the book. Mm -hmm. um, as you said, Moderna, as recently as May 2020, they weren't sure they were going to have money. Um, researchers at, at Oxford were sort of torn and, and whether this was going to be a uh, pandemic or not or a virus that, that they should be focusing on. Um, the Pfizer group First, BioNTech couldn't convince Pfizer to focus on, on a vaccine. And then even when they did, they, they were split on what kind of vaccine to build. So it's really important to understand that um, we should be grateful. The, these vaccines, it wasn't a sure thing that would work out and they have worked out. So um, there was a lot of drama behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of. Okay, okay, that's fair, that's fair. So do you think uh, molecular biology, genetics, and therapeutics are those fields were accelerated in terms of their capacity to implement translational research? Or was it just a basic, or was this fast progress just based on the needs and the circumstances of the time? 
Well, my book is really about the history of the last few years and actually the few decades mm-hmm. that really led up to these approaches. I mean, people weren't really focused on them. They weren't aware. But for years, uh, scientists have been working on mRNA and they were very kind of stubborn and resilient and persistent. The conventional wisdom was that we shouldn't waste time on mRNA. And yet these scientists ignore the conventional wisdom. So, and the same thing with the adenovirus approach, which led to the J&J and the AstraZeneca mm-hmm. vaccines. Again, the, the, the conventional wisdom was these, it wouldn't work out. Um, people shouldn't waste their time on them. So there was really a lot of history that went into these approaches. Yes, they turned around quickly and they worked um, quickly, obviously, last year. But it wasn't like they were thrown together quickly last year. There was a lot of work going into last year that I think people need to be aware of and um, is really um, heroic work that um, mm. I, I think people need to acknowledge and be grateful for. And that's kind of what my book is about, the heroic work that took place in 2020 last year, but also in the years leading up to 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed that the book is categorized based on or is portioned based on years and timeframes. So classic, uh, a classic risk management model involves periods where you monitor, respond, uh, you adjust, you implement, you assess, you authorize, you prepare, categorize, or select. Um, where do you think we're spending most of our time as in our response to this pandemic? Do you think our time is being spent primarily on responding to it or implementing changes or preparing for the changes that will come about from all these various uh, variants? Where do you think we're spending most of our time based on your studies and work that you've done thus far on the pandemic? Well, what's clear is we have not spent enough time on preparing for new viruses. There'll be new ones that emerge. Mm-hmm. There'll be maybe even new pandemics, potentially. We're in an age of, of lethal viruses. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, global warming, we're, we're in, encroaching on the animal kingdom more than ever. Uh, there's airline flights that's potentially spread disease all over the world. So we need to be much better prepared. And frankly, there, there were warnings about this vi- about a virus, not this one specifically, but a virus and that we meet, need to be better prepared. And um, most governments ignored the warnings. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't much preparation. We didn't have basic testing kits uh, ready. We didn't have basic masks. We had to import them and they were often faulty. Uh, it took, you know, early in the, in the uh, pandemic, we didn't have enough masks. Um, and it was a, a really scary kind of thing. So we don't do a good enough job in society about with preparing for these potentialities. We're good at scrambling and adjusting and addressing them when they emerge, but we do need to do a much better job preparing. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So, you know, continuing this conversation, you know, I did some research and some key vaccination facts from the World Health Organization states, uh, state that um, immunization through vaccination is one of the safest ways to protect against disease. It is always best to get vaccinated, even when the risk of infection is low. This is what the World Health Organization is saying. Combined vaccines are safe and beneficial. Um, the link between, there is no link rather, between vaccines and autism. This came from a myth from a 1998 study that was quickly found to be seriously flawed. And the study was ileal lymphoid nodular hyperplasia, non-specific colitis and pervasive developmental disorder in the children. And that was in the Lancet. And, 
that was study that study was found to be seriously flawed. And finally, if we stop vaccination, deadly disease will return. So these are key facts that the World Health Organization, from their comprehensive work and robust studies, they've decided that people should be aware of these things. So how do you think we can combat vaccine misinformation? How do you think we can so, combat that? It's a really great question. It troubles me very much. The scientists worked, they went all out to develop these vaccines. They succeeded, effective, protective vaccines, safe vaccines. And yet um, a, per, a portion, a percentage of the populace doesn't care and um, would rather rely on some YouTube video that their brother-in-law told them about as opposed to the uh, guidance of uh, their internists uh, that they trusted for years. It's perplexing to me and confounding. Uh, what do we do about it? Well, I'm trying to do my part, frankly. I think my book should be reassuring to people and I'm trying to get out there and talk to people and I've done speeches and done media with vaccine hesitant groups. And um, what I try to emphasize is that these vaccines were not done overnight. There was years of years of work uh, that was dedicated to developing them. They uh, were not uh, rushed. They, there were corners that were cut. And, and, and I think what, what's important to emphasize, and frankly, I don't think we do enough, the government and other kinds of people. Listen, there are two types of vaccine hesitant people. There are people that believe that Bill Gates is putting a chip inside our brains and it's hard to rationalize with those people, but there are a lot of other people that are quite um, um, measured and concerned and reasonable. And they're wary because they say, well, Greg, you, you told me that the average vaccine takes 10 years. The fastest vaccine until last year was four years. That was, that's uh, mumps. And, and now you're telling me that in 330 days, we created this new vaccine with a new technology. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. And, and I understand why those people are wary. They have reason to be wary. So what I try to emphasize is, well, A, the, the years that went into this, these vaccines, but B, the, the fact, the reason why we went so quickly, we were able to develop it so quickly is because we developed, um, developed these vaccines. We did different stages, different phases simultaneously. I don't mean phases as in phase one, phase two, phase three, but um, I mean, that historically what we did was develop a vaccine and test a vaccine, and then you manufactured a vaccine, three distinct um, stages that take years. But for the first time ever, we did things simultaneously. We developed, we manufactured vaccines, for example, before we even knew that they were gonna be effective. And we never did that historically because we didn't have the money for that. Why would you spend billions and billions of dollars manufacturing a vaccine when you don't even know it's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we could do that is we, the money was available. So again, we didn't cut any corners. We just did things simultaneously for the first time. And I think when you emphasize that, when you, when people know that, when people understand that it's reassuring to them and it should be reassuring to them. Ah, so we manufacture these vaccines before we even knew they were going to be um, um, effective be, be, because we were taking a, a, a risk. Uh, it was a risk, was money risk more than anything. It wasn't safety or health. So that explains why we went so quickly. And I think that should be reassuring for people. And I also think, you know, along the same lines, just because a result is novel, a result is new, doesn't mean the components haven't been developed over a long period of time. And the techniques haven't been developed over a long period of time. So yeah, I completely agree.
Um, That's a really good point. Yes. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. It takes time to develop the techniques, the skills, the all of the parameters, all of those things. Yeah. It takes time. Yeah. yeah. And in science, you right, do. Right. Right. They were, they were applied. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to tell you off. In science, right. what? In science, uh, many times we come up with new results, but the techniques were in the works from years, sometimes decades before we even began. So, yeah, you go ahead. What else, do you have other examples of that? That's a very good point. What you yeah, so for, yeah, of that? yeah, so for example, like in chemistry and synthetic chemistry, we come up with new molecules all the time, but like stereoselectivity, um, asymmetric organic uh, catalysis, all those organic catalysis, all of those things have been developed over time. Even though the things we can get, like it may be novel, we may get a new product that we have to characterize through NMR, mass spec, and a variety of other techniques. But even the techniques that we use to characterize that new product, they were developed over time. So, yeah. Yeah. So you. That's you a great point. Ahead. That's a great point. Yeah. So go ahead. I think that's important to emphasize for people, right? Hopefully, that's the kind of thing that can reassure people. Ah, so yeah, we developed it quickly, but the techniques were not developed quickly. Um, I think that should be reassuring for people. And that's part of the reason I wrote this book. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So do you think anecdotal evidence provides a basis for scientific decisions? If not, if it is not ground, grounded, peer-reviewed, unbiased, and data-driven? Uh, no, it all needs to be data-driven and peer-reviewed. Okay. Unfortunately, in, in this case, sometimes studies had to be released before they were peer reviewed, but eventually they were. So eventually we get there. It's just that we were in a pandemic and it wasn't the time, but it wasn't like any huge decisions were made um, or vaccines were, were shared, were, were, were distributed before um, the data was there. I mean, these, these uh, vaccines were tested on tens of thousands of people. And at this point, over a billion people have them inside them. So, um, you know, people should be reassured at this point. Yeah. So, um, uh, one more question along this pandemic, and then we'll discuss your career thus far. Um, why do you think conspiracy theories became so popular during this pandemic? It's a great question. You, you step on a nail, you step on a nail, well, and I'm sorry? I, well, I think, um, I, I, I think it's a, a good question in that um, I think many times, sometimes, or sometimes, the facts of the situation were being adjusted or spun and people were looking at them with different political views or beliefs or presuppositions or mental models or principles. So of course it was going to result in different outcomes or different ideas about the situation because the facts of the situation were being spun as opposed to being looked at from an objective or an empirical standpoint or basis. Uh, but you go ahead. Why do you think conspiracy theories became so popular? Yeah, well, you know, to your point, that is all true. The only question is why today is there, are there more of these? Why are they spinning it more? Mm -hmm. uh, why are there more conspiracy theories in the past? I mean, I was I was saying if you step on a nail, I don't care who you are, you go and get a tetanus shot. I don't mm -hmm. see people questioning. Well, where who who just developed the tetanus shot? How fast was the tetanus shot developed? How many people have received the tetanus shot? I think I'm going to wait on this tetanus shot. Maybe it's changing my DNA. You don't hear that at all. People just go get a tetanus shot. For some reason, in this pandemic, these vaccines became politicized. I think, and I think it's partly, it speaks to where we are in society. Mm -hmm. Everything is politicized. I don't care what it is. Everything, 
uh, sadly, sadly, is is a reflection of politics. And it's tribal. My team versus your team and your team versus my team. Oh, you like the vaccines? Then I can't like the vaccines. You, you don't like the vaccines? Then I can't have any questions about the vaccines. And um, it's it's a sad reflection of where America is today. I mean, I guess to some extent, broader society, other countries too. I see same kind of conspiracy theories in Germany and England as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it could be just where we are in terms of uh, how we obtain our information today. People don't read books like they used to. I'm, I'm, I've written a book and um, it's doing fine, but it seems like mainstream media, newspapers, people don't get their information. They get their information from YouTube and, and Facebook and their brother-in-law's cousin. So um, sadly, there's this um, question of, of information. I mean, it, it does stem from a healthy impulse. People today feel empowered. People feel they can get their own information. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own research. And that, that, is, that can be healthy. There's something to be said for that. I'm a believer in people um, becoming informed. Yeah. And it, it used to be that you go to a doctor and they put you in a trial. And now people, let's say you've got a disease of some kind. Now people do their own research. They tell their doctor, hey, I'd like to be in this, in this trial. And it goes back you know, decades. I start off my book with uh, HIV and the, the, um, the chase for an HIV vaccine. And HIV patients often were, 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 were not a part of the process. And things have changed since then. And, they're, and it, it's good to be empowered and to feel part of the process. But um, you also need to defer to the experts to some extent and scientists and they are trying to help and they're trying to heal and come up with vaccines and medicines and to be um, accuse them, accuse people in health and public health policy of doing harm is just awful and discouraging for somebody like myself. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I'll just give this classic example. I don't go to my principal investigator and tell him how I think he should do research on the Metallo chaperone. I, yeah. I yeah. Yeah. take his advice and proceed forward considering how he's the expert in this instance, in this situation. So, um, you know, I think um, it's important and I think your, your book is timely and it's very seminal. And I think it'll be a good addition to the information that we have up there right now. So concerning your career, you've been successful as a Wall Street Journal special writer. Um, what have been your longstanding interests in the field of science and journalism? Uh, what, what have been your interests have lasted uh, so long? Well, I, I write about all kinds of different areas. I'm not a science writer per se. Mm-hmm. I just look for good stories. So I'm an investigative reporter right now. And a lot of what I do is um, focusing on the bad and the good. I like uh, stri- strikeouts and home runs is the way I look at it. So it's companies, it's, it's firms, it's individuals that do really remarkable achievements. Um, I've written, I wrote a book a few years ago about the energy revolution in the United States and how we went from a country that was running out of oil and gas to discovering huge amounts of it, so much so that the United States is actually exporting oil and gas. And I wrote about the individuals that are responsible, and they're smaller companies, they're geologists, they're um, interesting wildcatters, people like that. I like to do that kind of thing. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago uh, called The Man Who Solved the Market, and that's about those individuals, and they're usually scientists and they're mathematicians mm-hmm. who developed a way to invest, a new way to build algorithms, to uh, predictive algorithms way before Facebook and 
uh, Silicon Valley was using predictive algorithms and how they conquered the market. So I like to write about big achievements and how individuals uh, pull them off and companies and scientists, how they pulled off those big achievements and changed society. And this one, my new book, A Shot to Save the World, is is really uh, encapsulates that theme of uh, unlikely individuals. And it's usually unlikely individuals that I like to write about, unlikely companies, et cetera, scientists, mathematicians, et cetera, uh, who changed the world. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very useful because people can learn from them and abstract ideas, mental models, principles, um, how they thought about the situation and try and apply some of their uh, thinking and ideas to their own personal lives. So how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? How do I, I'm sorry, maintain the bigger picture? Yeah, view of the bigger picture. How do you see the forest for the trees and how well, keep perspective essentially? So it helps that I'm a generalist. I'm not an expert. I, I'm not a scientist. I probably got B's at most taking my classes in, in science uh, growing up. So I come at every topic as an outsider and I'm fascinated by these achievements. So it, it, to me, it really helps. It really helps that, um, um, that I'm an outsider. I mean, to me, it really is uh, important to be now, to, to maintain the perspective of an outsider. Um, I, uh, it helps me be impressed by these individuals. It helps me be a little bit skipped, skeptical too. I'm not too caught up in it. So it helps that I'm um, an, an outsider and not an expert. And it hurts me as well. So it, it's a challenge to be, I have to become an expert on some of these areas. And I, I hired a PhD to, get, to tutor me. Um, she's in a lab in Newark and she worked with me on um, educating me on various aspects. And all, a lot of the scientists, the vaccine uh, the virologists, the vaccine specialists, the researchers, they all walked me through a lot of the topics and the issues, and um, that helped me as well. Yeah, that's good. And that answers the following question. How, because uh, that explains how you are adaptive and creative in the fields of science and journalism. So how did you seek or find the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? How did you end up at the Wall Street Journal as a special writer? How do you achieve that uh, career achievement? How did you reach there? Uh, I started off at a small little newsletter and okay. then I went to the New York Post and then I went to the Wall Street Journal. I've been there since 1996. And basically I worked my way up and I um, mm. proved myself. And then at the journal, I've done various different um, beats, different topics, different areas of investigation. But now I'm in an uh, investigative uh, uh, unit. So they let me, they give me a lot of leeway. I come up with uh, good ideas, hopefully, or they have good ideas for me to research, to, to uh, run after, to target. And, um, but there's a lot of uh, flexibility. Sometimes I write about science. Sometimes I write about the energy world. I write about finance. So I'm very, very blessed and, and lucky that um, I have this kind of leeway. I mean, the, the challenge is to be an expert in all these different areas mm -hmm. and to find the right people to talk to. So that's my challenge. But the the good side, the good thing is uh, I never get bored. There's always some interesting area to write about. Yeah, always. Yeah, that's good because I've heard uh, I've heard people discuss, uh, brings up several key ideas, you know, um, expertise could be a function of time, mentorship, resources, exploration, and exposure. So that's one thing as well as, um, you know, I've heard people talk about jumping from one S-curve to the next in which you're developing constantly learning, plateauing and then developing constantly learning, 
doing well and so in terms of disrupting yourself in your career so that's very good so what have been your most effective and impactful ideas to date i would say this book is very impactful i would say your new york times bestseller was impactful what have been your most impactful ideas well i don't know about ideas but i have had impactful stories i think i hope so um my books have, been, have had some impact. Um, I've written also two books for young people. Mm-hmm. I wrote two books w- with my sons. We wrote books to inspire young people. They're called Rising Above mm-hmm. and um, Rising Above uh, Female Athletes. The first is mostly male athletes and the second are female athletes. And mm-hmm. the idea was we wanted to speak to the athletes and find out how they overcame challenges in their youth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's trying to be entertaining, but also inspiring for young people. And I'm very proud that a lot of young people, this is their first book they've read. And a lot of adults uh, give them to their children around Christmas time to, to inspire them. And um, I've been inspired. My sons and I both have been inspired by these stories of the athletes and what they overcame. So um, I'm hoping other people are inspired as well. Yeah, stories of victory can lead to inspiring others. I completely agree. So how do you maintain a balanced life given all your responsibilities and accomplishments? How do you strive to maintain a sense of balance or a sense of priority, um, given all your responsibilities and accomplishments? So I have um, a family that I cherish and uh, they demand attention and that keeps things in perspective. But um, I'm religious as well. So I keep the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, and that forces me to turn off my phone uh, and my computer for 25 hours from uh, Friday night to Saturday nights, I'm overwhelmed with work and I'm the 25 hours, but to turn things off for 25 hours, I don't um, answer emails. I don't send emails. I don't use electricity. I don't, um, while I was younger, that seemed, um, it was a real challenge. And I had friends that um, were going to the movies and doing fun things and television on the Sabbath. As, they, as I get older, I appreciate it. And it really is very helpful for me. I can recharge, uh, ironically. Uh, I'm not using electronics, electricity, no phones, but it helps me recharge. And I find it very, very, very beneficial to, to keep the, uh, the Sabbath. Idea. I'm a Christian as well. And um, keeping the Sabbath is an important practice, very important practice. So how have you been so successful as a special writer? Would you say it's the time that you put in? Would you say it's a mentorship that you were given as you progress from the small um, newsletter to the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal. What would you say has been the key factor in your success thus far? I, I wish I had mentors. I never really did, to be frank with you. I've had good editors, but I've really never had any mentors. Um, so I wish I had mentors. But my, um, if I've had success, it's because I'm I'm curious and I um, I ask a lot of questions. My wife will say, maybe have too many, ask too many questions. It can drive her crazy, but uh, I'm a curious person. So um, I find everyone has a story. Everyone has an interesting story. uh, And I want to hear what their story is. So I've been lucky to, to uh, have people that I can ask questions of and, and, and get help from. So there are people, there are always people to help you be it in the world of science, be it in the world of finance, be in the world of energy, all the areas that I've written about they're always if you ask enough questions often enough people there's someone who'll take the time to explain and to sit with you and and and, uh, and and work things out and hold your hand as it were on the phone on an email they'll run they'll make sure what you're writing is accurate 
So if you ask enough people, you'll find people to help you. And mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how many people are eager. Um, maybe they're just nice. Maybe they just want to see their name in the paper and they don't want to make sure they want to make sure that it's not inaccurate for whatever reason, people have different motivations, but um, I've always felt that if you ask enough people, there, there are people there to help. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I, substance doesn't exist in a vacuum. By definition, a vacuum has nothing in it. Um, mm-hmm. So we live in community, you know, and things are more interdependent than they appear to be. So I completely agree. It's good to, um, it's good to have community and it's good to lean on other people. So how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? How do you, how do you facilitate collaboration with other people? How are you able to maintain view of the big goals for your projects? How do you maintain that? Well, at the Wall Street Journal and, and with my books, they're always great people to work with. I'm very lucky The Wall Street Journal and the staff are just super smart and hardworking and the editors as well. So I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. Okay, good. So do you have any advice to those wanting to pursue the field you are currently working in? Um, ask a lot of questions, show you can um, break news. There always, there's always a need for people to break news. Um, and um, yeah, just, just look for an area that maybe you can specialize in, do a little bit better than everybody else. I completely agree. Yeah, so expertise and specialization does favor people. So what has been the most beneficial advice you have received to date? If you were to summarize the advice that you've received or consolidate or condense it, what would you say has been some seminal advice that, that you remember um, or that comes to mind and that is helpful to you? Well, my father was an academic. Uh, he's passed away, but he was a professor and he wrote as well. And he was a very good writer. He wrote a few books too. And he always said, keep things tight, cut things out that are extraneous. Don't um, write extra, write longer than you need to. He was always cutting, cutting things out of my writing. So I, I've always remembered that. Okay, that's good. Well, thank you, Mr. Zuckerman. Uh, thank you, Greg, for the sure. interview. I really appreciate it. And thank you again for the conversation. Great to be here. Have Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Thank you.